Well, a few back, weeks back when I began looking at Acts chapter 18, I noted that Paul's arrival in Corinth really marked a major transition in his ministry. I mean, at that time, he had been an apostle as such for about five years. But here he experienced a whole series of what I call firsts. Uh, for example, it, it's the first time that he and his team would remain long enough in any one place that they could really put down deep enough roots and have a significant impact that would really enable the church to grow beyond just a small, uh, basically, community of believers. That he was also the first time that he was protected by the local authorities instead of being persecuted and imprisoned by them. That it was the first time that he gave up his day job. We don't think about this, but the first five years of his ministry, Paul worked at his trade making tents to support himself and did not take the support of the local churches. In large part, he said, because he didn't want them to think he was doing it for the money. But this is the first time as offerings are coming in from Philippi and Thessalonica, he says that he devoted himself exclusively to the preaching of the word of God. It was also the first time that uh, we would find himself being supported by other churches, doing what we would consider normal in ministry or missionary work. Uh, and it's the first time that we are told what his day job was. Prior to this, we didn't know that Paul had a job or he had a skill, but every Jewish father felt it incumbent to train his son in a skill so that he could support himself. And so he was a tent maker. And we assume that the, peop the, pr the biggest market for tents in that time were, was the Roman army. And so it makes a lot of sense that he had become skilled. These were particularly what we call goat hair tents. You still see them in the Middle East. They're, they're marvelous tents because they're literally woven from goat hair, and goat hair has an interesting quality. When it is really hot, the fibers open up and allow the wind and the breeze to pass through, and when it gets cold or rainy, they constrict and they keep the rain from penetrating. They really adjust themselves perfectly to the climate. And this became quite a sought-after trade. So it was a lucrative business, an important business. Uh, in a sense, Paul would, would have been what we would call a, a military contractor. Um, but uh, last of all, it was the first time that he was given time to build a ministry team that could expand the work far beyond his own abilities. And we began to see that term forming, that team forming here in chapter 18. As he would later state in his letter to the church in Colossia, that he said, I, I want you to know how much I am struggling for you and for those in Laodicea and for all those who have not met me personally. In other words, there were churches that we read in the Bible who did not have a personal encounter of Paul. They knew him only through his letters and through those who went and started the churches and represented his leadership to those various churches. And so Paul understood the idea of exponential growth. He didn't have to confine everything to what he could control. He became a disperser of responsibility whenever he found responsible people. And that's a critical criteria right there. He, he dispensed or, or spread around the responsibility when he found responsible men and women whom he could entrust these things to. Well, all, all these changes represent the beginnings of a whole new season for the early church as well. As Paul would later explain to the Corinthians in his first letter, he said in chapter 3, by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder and someone else is building on it. So most of us who have done any kind of building at all understand the importance of a foundation. You know, errors in the foundation cannot be repaired once the building is built. And as we learned in the news recently, when there were errors in the foundation in a high rise in Florida, the whole thing came collapsing down, killing, what is it now, something like 95 or 109 or whatever people who perished as a result of that place's collapse. I was just sharing with my wife that, I, that that tower that collapsed in Florida has a sister tower just down the road also on the beach built by the same contractor. And I said, this may be our opportunity to get a beachside condominium really cheap. Yeah, kind of a sick joke, isn't it? Yeah, but there again, I can justify it. I'm talentless anyway. <laughs> 
But as this work grew, it became increasingly necessary to enlist others to help him in the work. And not just simply to do the work of evangelism, but maybe in some ways just or more important was to disciple, as Jesus put it in Matthew 28. He said, go and make disciples. And literally the word make there, if we were to render it from the original, implies the idea that you're urging and convincing people to become disciples. Now that may seem like we shouldn't have to do that, but I find that there's inherent resistance to discipleship in people's lives because discipleship is all under the same rubric of Matthew 16, 24 that says, if any man will come after me, he must deny himself, pick up his cross and follow me. So you can see why people would have to be urged, convinced that being a disciple, a follower of Jesus was in their best interest and in the interest of the kingdom of God, but also ultimately would lead to their own sense of purpose and fulfillment and satisfaction. And so Jesus says, the first thing you have to do is make disciples. I think Jesus assumed that there would be converts. And we'll talk about some of those converts who fall away very easily when they realize that discipleship is part of the equation. So he said, what you need to do is really focus on making disciples, urging and convincing people to become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. But secondly, he said that you should be baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In other words, the second part of that is that they need to be baptized, which is a statement of commitment. It's a public declaration that I have committed my life to following and becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say, it's an idea of committing to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in the name of the Father. The idea of name as it's used in the scriptures implies authority or your submission to that authority. So people need to be encouraged to make the life commitment. They need to make the commitment and they also need to submit to the authority of God because he goes on to say, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Teaching them how to be obedient by both your word, but also by your example. These things make really the development of a disciple a lifelong challenge and oftentimes a difficult and sacrificial challenge but at the end of the day, it doesn't really work. And when I see people are saying, well, I trusted Christ and it didn't work out for me, all I can say is, you had the seed, but you didn't plant it very deep. Or you put it in the wrong place. Or you didn't nurture it. It didn't get nurtured. And that's often the case in the church today. Because we find that increasingly, pastoral ministries are moving into teaching things that are easier to hear, more comfortable, when somebody recently wrote me and said, I go away from your services feeling bad. And I thought, good. <laughs> I, I don't mean that in a mean, malicious way, but if, if something I'm doing, if I'm up here and I'm not kind of shaking the tree, if I'm not challenging, if you're not being stirred to step back and take a hard look and reconsider and reevaluate, then are we growing? We know that in nature, rooted plants grow stronger and send their roots deeper and become more fruitful and healthy and productive when they are challenged by the elements. And yet we have kind of a greenhouse Christianity today where we want to take the plants and protect them and make sure they're cared for and watered and fertilized and, and not given too much heat but not too much cold. And they grow resplendently until we take them out and then they wither and die because they've never been acclimated to the world. And we have a Christianity that is not acclimated because we have not been subject to persecution. And so we're not acclimated to the kind of climates that Christianity grows and thrives most wonderfully. And please don't say that, don't misunderstand me. I am not somebody who invites persecution. But the real issue is the role of a minister, the role of somebody like me is not simply to convert people, but it's also to urge them to become fully informed and fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. That Paul knew full well that if conversion was not followed by a comparable commitment, that new converts would quickly drift into all kinds of wild, silly doctrines and fruitless chaos. 
As he warned, again, going on in, in 1 Corinthians, he says, each one of you should be careful how he builds. For no one can lay a foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. And if any man builds on this foundation using gold or silver or costly stones, or conversely, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is. Because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. In other words, Paul was promising there is a day in which your faith will be tested, will be tried by fiery circumstances, and when you go into those moments and go through those moments, it will be revealed the true character of your faith, the true reality, the depth of your faith. Because Jesus warned, without a deeply rooted faith within a firm foundation of his truth, people might, as he said in the parable of the sower, receive the word with joy, but since they have no root, he says, they believe for a while, but in the time of testing, when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they last only a short time and they quickly fall away. The phrase, they, because of the word, they fall away. It's not just because we believe the Bible, but because we believe what the Bible says and we therefore take the Bible seriously. There are people who say, I take the Bible literally, but I wonder, do you take it all so seriously? Do you read it and say, it's incumbent upon me if I am a follower of Jesus Christ to believe your word? When I get into discussions with people about political candidates and they always want to go into saying, well, you're a Republican or you're a Democrat. And the thing that really kind of puzzles me in that whole conversation is how in the world, if you believe God's word is true, do you vote for a candidate who is pursuing the murder of innocent babies? How in the world do you cast a vote for a genocidal murderer? Even he or she never pushed the button. Most people don't realize. Do you know how many people Adolf Hitler killed? None. We have no record that Joseph Stalin ever killed anybody. Or Pol Pot. And yet we don't have any question identifying these people as genocidal murders because they inspired and they supported and they funded the very death machines that others around them created. And what do you think Planned Parenthood and many in both the Democratic and Republican Party are guilty of? But funding the very machine, the very genocidal machine that kills millions and tens of millions of babies in our own country today. And then some people say, well, well, I love the phrase I just read last week. Well, pastors just need to stay in their lane. God isn't staying in your lane. <laughs> what is God's lane? Is not it every lane? Doesn't he touch everything? I mean, it's such a, such a ludicrous, it sounds so clever, and yet when you boil it down and say, well, what exactly do you mean like that? They're basically saying, don't say anything controversial. And I subscribe to that, 2AT. <laughs> but Peter later warned, he said, that even these people who will outwardly continue in the faith will soon enough, he said, be enticed. They'll be enticed by false teachers who secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them. Many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the way of the truth into disrepute. And in their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories they have made up. For they mouth empty and boastful words, and by appealing to the lustful desires of sinful human nature, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. What would be my objection to so many of the current ideologies that people are embracing? I mean, the neo-Marxism, 
the social Marxism, the critical race theory, and all these other things, is the fact that they essentially are destructive heresies. They misidentify what's wrong with the world. They say the problem is racism. Well, racism is a problem, but it's not the root problem. Well, the problem is wealth and greed. It's a problem, but it's not the root problem. The root problem is that people are sinners. And not only does that sin corrupt their social behavior, but it also will condemn their body and soul to hell for eternity. And that's a much bigger problem. And yet all the time the enemy is trying to get the church to move away from the main thing, to chase after some ancillary issue that isn't irrelevant. And I can't even say it's not important. Greed and racism are terrible sins along with abortion, adultery, fornication, and on and on the list goes. I don't need to read them all to you. Paul will give them to you in Galatians 5. You can read it for yourself. That he said to the Corinthians, and such were some of you, but you have been saved. And if we're saved, we evidence that by repentance. That we no longer wink or blink at those things. We look at them for what they are. We call them for what they are. We're all guilty of at least one to four of those. And we say, God, forgive us. And then it becomes our mission to bring the healing grace of God to other people who have likewise been taken captive and victimized by those same sins. But at the same time to say, well, let's just remain silent because you may hurt somebody's feelings. I told you, I'm talentless. I, I can't not do it. Like a general preparing to go into battle, Paul was looking for capable, competent soldiers, co-workers, if you will, who were, as he described them in 2 Timothy 2, 1, when he said, they are people who are strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. They, they've been gripped by the grace of God. They're not, they're not deluded by any idea that they have something that God needs or wants and has to have, but they realize that they've been saved by mercy and empowered by grace that as Paul would say, no good thing dwells in me. They understand it's all of grace as he would write to the Corinthians in the end of his first letter. I am what I am by the grace of God. End of story. Nothing to boast about. The grace of God is Jesus. He is the brand. He said, secondly, they need to be trustworthy and reliable men and women who will also be, thirdly, qualified to teach others, and lastly, able to endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. These are men and women who would, as Jesus put it in Matthew 7, hear these words of mine, put them into practice, like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the stream rose, the wind blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. Two of these people that fit this profile was this husband and wife team named Aquila and Priscilla. We're not told how they came to Christ or who discipled them. But when they met Paul, they were mature enough in the faith that when they encountered another eventual protege of Paul, a young man by the name of Apollos, who is from Alexandria in Egypt, it says they invited him into their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. Seven times they're referenced in the New Testament. You know, almost every time it talks about them having people in their home and doing the work of discipleship. See, too often we so formalize the idea of making disciples that we miss the sheer simplicity of sitting across the kitchen table with an open Bible and taking the time to more adequately explain the word and the will of God to a new believer or a mature believer. 
We think, well, we have to have a class on discipleship. And I'm, I don't disagree with those things. I think that information has to be communicated, but somehow that information has to be applied and, and experienced to be lived in a practical way. That how do you learn to pray unless you pray with other people who have learned how to pray? Lest we get caught up in some kind of liturgical nonsense like ancient mendicants, Rabalama Samadama. <laughs> you know. I am you, you are me, we are one, we are the walrus. I mean, Sometimes I listen to praying and I think to myself, is God listening? Because <laughs> I'm having a hard time. Does this person know Jesus personally? Because they talk like it's a stranger. <laughs> or sometimes they raise their voice and yell and shout so loudly. I think about I, I, Elijah when he was contending with the prophets of Baal who were running around shouting and yelling and, and cutting themselves. And, and, and he simply began to say, do you think he can hear you? Maybe he's on a trip. Literally, the text says, maybe he's in the bathroom and can't come right away. That's always when Amazon comes to my house. How did they know? From other texts, this seems to have been really their kind of gifting, their, the discipling of young believers with a, a generous affection that as Paul speaks of them at the end of his first letter to the Corinthians, he says, Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord and so does the church that meets at their house. That word warmly in the original has a, it's pregnant with expression. In other words, when they greet you, they do it with a sense of, of enjoyment. You know how it is. You, you see somebody that you like a lot and, and you encounter them and just, it becomes evident. You're, you're just ebullient with feeling about, hey, it's so good to see you and that's so great. We got to get together. We got to make a time to spend time. I miss our associate. You know, that kind of sense that you feel like this person really does like me. And there are other people who look at you like the guy did at Costco one time and he looks at me and was staring and I look back at him. He says, I know you. I know you. Who are you? And I said, Ken Ortiz. Oh, he walked away. <laughs> I, still hurts. <laughs> Hope your cart gets a flat. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that, that was a thing with them that they, they, somebody came to the door and they didn't go, pretend like we're not home. <laughs> they opened the door and they let him in and they went to wherever the need was in their life. Who are these two people? Well, as I said, they're mentioned seven times in the New Testament, every time in the most positive way but always together. It's interesting. Never once is it Aquila <laughs> or Priscilla. In fact, even how their names are mentioned, three times it's Aquila and Priscilla, Aquila and Priscilla, Aquila and Priscilla. Three more times it's Priscilla and Aquila, Priscilla and Aquila, Priscilla and Aquila. It's this interesting dynamic. These guys are like matched sets. We're told that they originally came from a place called Pontus, which is in today modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor. It was Galatia was a region in Paul's time. They were obviously Greek-speaking Jews. They had migrated to Rome probably for economic reasons to make tents for the army as Paul did. And they had been forced to leave Rome because as the Roman historian Suetonius writes in his book, The Twelve Caesars, he said the Jews were constantly making disturbances at the instigation of Crestus. And therefore, Emperor Claudius expelled them from Rome. 
Most scholars believe that Crestus is really a mispronunciation of Christ, that Suetonius actually thought Crestus was the guy who was running around creating all the problems. And in a way he was, Jesus says, I don't come to the earth to bring peace, I come to breed a sword that I will divide. I will cause mothers to turn against their children, fathers and their, their sons, husbands and wives. There's a dividing comes because you, he forces you to make a decision. Will you follow him or will you continue to appease the clan that you're a part of? Very likely, they were at the very heart of this negative reaction. <clears throat> that the Jewish leaders in Rome were not at all happy and they began to get into a riotous form so that when Paul is arrested in in uh, Corinth, or brought up on charges before the proconsul, a man by the name of Gallio, whom we also know historically was there at that time. He had no patience because he understood that Rome had no patience for any more of these Jewish disagreements. And so not only did he say, stop arguing in front of me and get out of my, my uh, courtroom, but then he let his own men go out and beat the head of the synagogue over the head until he became clarified his understanding of the issue. Yet Aquila and Priscilla's expulsion would prove to be God's commission, not an omission. How many times we see circumstances in our life that don't line up with the plan that we have carefully laid out. In fact, they may completely destroy the plans that we have carefully laid out. And we wonder, God, why did you let this happen? As if God is out there trying to keep track of all these busy little beavers on the planet and sometimes he just forgets certain streams and lakes and rivers. And you get overlooked and passed by and suddenly I've got this problem and where were you, God, when this was happening? But the eyes of faith that has gone through the experience of life comes to realize over a season that, that nothing misses God's eyes when he says every hair in your head has a number. And for many of us, that's getting very, very easy to count. But the, he also says there isn't a sparrow that falls from the sky that he doesn't know it's falling. And he says, oh, you foolish individual, do you think you could add one inch to your height? One day to your life? God doesn't overlook anything. He doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't create a girl and then suddenly say, oops, you're supposed to be a man. As one Christian writer put it several years ago before this became a major issue in our culture, he said, when you can convince people that a man can become a woman, then you can convince them of anything. And that's what's going on in our dirt scramble people's thinking to where they no longer trust their own thought life and then you feed them the line you want them to believe. And they'll believe it just because they want stability. But it's God's word that tells us, I think in Romans eight twenty eight, Paul, I like the way the Amplified puts it because they call it the Amplified translation because it amplifies but he put this way, he says, we are assured and know that God being a partner in our labor works all things together, fitting into a plan for good for those who love God and are called according to his design and purpose. Now here's the caveat, friends. In order for things to work out well, <laughs> you have to love God I mean, in other words, he becomes the central passion of your life more than anything else. And that you're following or seeking to follow his plan for your life. If you have God as just one of many gods in your life, and most people don't see themselves in that idolatrous frame, but you are many times. And we all struggle with that kind of personal idolatry where I just, you know, I don't know. My, my son took me to a Tesla dealership. I love God, but it was challenged at that moment. <laughs> we find ourselves getting attracted, being seduced by all sorts of things. But in the end of the day, I had to simply say, God, if you never give me a Tesla, I'll still worship you. No, I seriously did. <laughs> But that's the idea that we go through all of, unless you get me that job, well, even if I don't get that job, God, 
I'll still worship you. Even if she won't marry me, I'll still worship you. Even if I don't recover from this illness, I'll still love you. I'll love you more than my very life. That when we love God on that level, consciously, purposely, intentionally, and we just say, God, just whatever you design and whatever your purpose, that's what I will embrace for my life. He said, then you can be certain of one thing, that everything that's going on in your life will work out for his glory and for your joy. Although we know of no formal authorized evangelic mission that was ever sent to Rome, we know that Paul's later letters to the Romans instructs us that there was a very well-formed body of believers when he arrives there 10 years later. But in no small part, I think it's due to the fact that when Paul comes to Corinth, he has Silas and he has Timothy and he has Luke. There may have been others, but none of them are mentioned. But by the time he leaves Corinth, there's also Apollos, Aquila, and Priscilla, and maybe many more like Crispus and Gaius and Sosthenes. That suddenly there was this team of individuals that were surrounding Paul. How the church in Rome ever got started? Well, that's probably a whole major study in itself, but it's probable that Jewish pilgrims and merchants who had received Christ in Jerusalem came back to Rome with the gospel. And all that happened there was spontaneous. They were fulfilling the Great Commission not because they went through an evangelism class in Jerusalem before they returned home. They did it because they had experienced Jesus and they just had to tell other people because they cared and loved them about the experience that they had found the Messiah. They had found the thing that the Jews had been searching for and hoping for and praying for and yearning for for millennia. We have found him, the Christ, the Savior of the world that when they got saved, there was this unstoppable passion for Christ, as Mark put it, to go into all the world and preach and to publish openly the gospel to the whole world. But just as importantly, the mission was, wasn't something that was so carefully crafted a strategy as much as it was just a, an inner passion to share the truth. And I have to say this, friends. I think we're living in a culture that subtly is encouraging you to tamp that passion down. Don't get carried away. Don't give the impression you're an extremist. Don't be judgmental. I love that one. You're judging me, bro. (laughs) Well, yeah, actually, I am. Uh, But not based upon me. I'm as bad as you are, but based upon the word of God that if you reject Christ, you'll go to hell. Oh, that's pretty unloving. I said, you think that's unloving? Well, you'll experience hell. (laughs) This is going to feel like love, 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 (laughs) like a romantic paramour next to what you're going to experience in hell. I mean, Paul certainly had a regular way of doing it. He had a kind of a rhythm of his life that he followed. But it was not that kind of thing that became so static and so structured that it squeezed the life of the Spirit right out of who he was. That we often use that illustration as becoming like a sponge. You soak up so much that if you bump up against somebody, the gospel just kind of squirts out all over them. It's the way I certainly felt when I first got saved. I was just looking for somebody to tell people about what had happened to me. I wasn't even thinking about what was wrong with them or what they needed. I had no idea how the world was going to end. It took me years to figure out that perfectly, and if you don't believe as I do, you're wrong. But, but all I knew was that God had forgiven me and God loved me and that God had saved me and God had cleansed me and my shame was gone, my guilt was gone and I knew that 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 if my life ended right that moment, it would be the most beautiful experience and no longer something to be feared. And when I 
started tracking down my old doper buddies to tell them about Jesus. I was so puzzled at their disinterest. Not just disinterest, they became escape artists. Only a handful of them ever came to Christ and ever talked to me ever again. But you see, it's something that Zechariah described when he said, he says, it's not by might. In other words, it's not by the, the forth, for, uh, forcefulness or the, uh, the strength or the might or the efficiency of, or the wealth that we bring to play on it as we often think. You know, I, I used to hear all these Christian broadcasters, they say things like, well, your contributions are important because the work of God can't go forward without your tithes and offerings. And I think to myself, if it's the work of God, why does he need money? I understand you need money, <laughs> but the work of God is not dependent upon us. We don't give because we want to see the work supported. We give because we want to support the work that God's doing. Because we want to participate in what God's doing, but we never should fall into the illusion that God is dependent because if God is working, he'll do his work with or without you. Because when God brought, guides, he always provides. So it's not by our resources, nor by great and impressive power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. The spirit that he delivers to us based upon his mercy and his grace. And as I said before, that Paul wasn't about jealously guarding his position as his namesake in the Old Testament, King Saul, was busy guarding his kingdom. Instead, what he did is sought to share the work with those who had shown themselves not only to be gifted, but also to be faithful. When he writes to Timothy, he says that these people can't be novices, that is that they're not new to the faith or they can't be new to you. They have to be known quantities. He says, because otherwise, lest being lifted up with pride, they fall into the condemnation of the devil. He says, let those, these also first be proved. They have to have a track record. So to give responsibility to somebody is based upon We've seen this track record of responsible response. Because as Proverbs 25, 19 says, like a broken tooth or a lame foot is reliance on an unfaithful man in a time of trouble. I, I had to really get over that passage because I once broke my foot. I broke it on the Sea of Galilee of all places. And I just tell people that water is harder than it looks <laughs> Just watch your step when you try to walk on it. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> in Luke 16, Jesus said, so if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with the true riches? The true riches. The true wealth, the true riches is Christ in us. And that's why in Psalms, he says to the faithful, you'll show yourself faithful. Faithful. To the faithful, you'll show yourself faithful. God is always faithful. It's one of Jesus' names, faithful. Sadly, we live in an age that is headed in quite the opposite direction. We live in a time where style is more important than substance. Stephen Covey, who's a secular writer, had a book that was really a sensational hit at the time called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I almost read through it. By the time I got through all the habits I was supposed to have, I was so depressed I quit. But it's interesting. He says highly effective people, not highly successful people. There is an important difference. But listen to what he said in the introduction to his book as he began to outline his conclusions. He said, most of the success literature published in the United States for the first 150 years of its history focused on the character ethic as being the foundation of a successful life. Things like integrity, humility, simplicity, fairness, modesty, love, courage, justice, 
the golden rule. However, shortly after World War I, the basic view of success shifted from the character ethic to the personality ethic. In these books, the driving force behind success was shown to be an individual's personality as opposed to character. Things like public image, how you dress, how you perform in social interactions, positive mental attitude, skills and techniques to get people to behave in a certain way. As long as you say and do the right things and package yourself in the right way, you will be likely to get the results you want, but I would add, but not necessarily live effectively or even really be personally successful that when you come to the end of your days and you look back over how you've lived them, you won't look back and say, I lived a good life. You may say, I won a lot. I acquired a lot. I caused a lot of people to fear me. But did I ever really find the meaning of life? I mean, all of us, I think, can readily see the difference between the character ethic and the personality ethic. And yet the culture that we live in is so influenced by the way that they influence the very way we do life that most of us go through life, let's be honest, pretending. We're faking it in hopes that somehow by doing that we'll make it. This has seeped so deeply into the church that A.W. Tozer so prophetically said more than 50 years ago. He said, the separating line between the church and the world has been all but obliterated. Religious leaders have adapted the techniques of the advertisers. Boasting, baiting, shameless exaggerations are now carried as a normal procedure in church work. The moral climate is not that of the New Testament, but that of Hollywood. Most evangelicals no longer initiate, they imitate, and the world is their model. Worship has become a form of entertainment. We have lost our revolutionary character. It is no longer either dangerous or costly to be a Christian. Unfortunately for those of us in the West, we become accustomed to the reports of Christian sufferings around the world. The Chinese have crushed the church in Hong Kong and other places, as long with other groups, because the Chinese government can only countenance one faith, and that's worship of Xi Jinping, their president and prime minister. North Korea... It's amazing, the same idea. They're not so much communists as they're idolaters. They worship King Jong-un. And I, I've learned some fascinating things about him from some of their own movies and representations of him. Do you realize that he never has to use the bathroom? <laughs> that he eats food and drinks things, but he, he never has to eliminate anything. That may be why he's so big. <laughs> that the day he was born, the... Climate changed from winter into summer overnight. Flowers began to bud in the middle of winter. Stars flew through the heavens. Why? Well, because the story is he is divine and can do anything he wants. We see it in Iran. We see it and hear less about it in India. Nigeria, do you realize in the last 10 years, 46,000 Christians have been murdered in Nigeria? 2,000 were murdered just last year. Do we even care? We see all of this going on in the world and many other places. I haven't got time to go through them all, but all the while we go away concluding that, well, at least it couldn't happen here because we are in the land of the free, the home of the brave. We have freedom of speech. We have freedom of religion unless we have COVID. <laughs> Most of us assume that. In fact, Baronel Stutzman actually believed that to be true until she had a different experience. And fortunately for Baronella, she lives somewhere east of East Germany called Tri-Cities. 
See, I'll, I'll read the account. It's, it's, Baronella is the owner of Arlene's Flowers in Richland, Washington. She serves everyone who sets foot in her store, and this includes her longtime customer and friend, Rob Ingersoll, whom she had served for nearly 10 years. Baronella loved to design beautiful and creative floral art for Rob, but when Rob asked her to design floral arrangements to celebrate his same-sex wedding, Baronella knew that because of her Christian beliefs about marriage, she couldn't agree. So she walked Rob to a quiet part of her shop, took his hands in her own, and gently told him why she couldn't do what he asked. Baronella then referred Rob to three local florists who she knew would do a good job. They chatted for a few more minutes about Rob's wedding plans, hugged, and then Rob left the shop. Then it was over, or so Baronella thought. Rob's partner posted the encounter on social media. That post generated news coverage seen by the Washington Attorney General which prompted him to file a lawsuit against Baronella, and using unprecedented measures, he not only went after Baronella's business, but also sued her in her personal capacity. And later, the ACLU also joined in, filing a separate lawsuit on behalf of Rob and his partner. Now Baronella may lose her business and her life savings. This went all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court sent it back to the Washington State Supreme Court and said, you need to relitigate this because of certain errors in the way you approach it. So they relitigated, found her guilty again. Went back to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court said, uh, we don't, we don't want to listen to it. And so now she's on the hook. But you have to understand what's going on around you, especially if you don't pay any attention to what's going on around you. That today's florists, bakers, wedding photographers, and a bunch of other businesses are being regularly indicted, they're being sued, they're being fined, they're being made to attend sensitivity and diversity courses. HR departments are making them study critical race theory and all sorts of other things like that. All because they simply refuse to sign off on the agenda. In Canada and Scotland and in the Netherlands, pastors have been arrested, fined for hate speech because they read verses out of the Bible that condemn homosexuality and transsexuality. In their church reading the Bible, reading those passages, they're arrested. The Washington State Supreme Court just ruled that a Seattle Christian nonprofit homeless ministry must hire employees who do not share the ministry's religious beliefs. The Massachusetts Supreme Court ruled that a Christian college must hire academics who don't share their core Christian beliefs. The American Library Association, where fortunately you can still get a copy of Mein Kampf, a component of Das Kapital, and many other such writings, but fortunately they have created a list of the top 10 banned lists from America's library, and number six on the list is the Bible. So if you go to your library and say, I want to check out a Bible, they say, oh, we don't carry hate literature. In the last six months, 45 Canadian churches have been intentionally set on fire. Many others have been vandalized. And the prime minister, Pepe Le Pew Prideau, I think I got that right. My French is not that good. Has just said, when I said, hmm, what else is on the agenda? <laughs> there's no national investigation. There's no special committee or commission. And I think the problem is if the fires had started on January 6th, there would be many, many commissions investigating it, but because they would be sure that the churches had set themselves on fire. You see, increasingly, we see Christianity being basically mocked, criticized, marginalized, but eventually the goal is to ostracize. The question is no longer if it's gonna happen here. The question really is, how will you and I as Christians respond when it happens here? And the reason why that's an important question to ask is because historically, 
when persecution fell upon the church, the initial response was the ranks of the church became incredibly thin. That many chose the option of Peter who said, I don't know the man, rather than suffer. Paul warned that in the end times people, and Jesus said as well, would depart from the faith. So I assume that these are people of shallow faith and because it's shallow, it soon proved to be really no faith at all. But yet it was only later as their neighbors saw the faith of Christians enduring the hardships with faith, hope, and love that whole nations began to turn to Christ because they recognized these people possess something that we don't have. Which brings me back to Aquila and Priscilla. They followed Paul to Ephesus after he left Corinth. They were left there to build up the church. And at some point, they returned to Rome as leaders of the church in Rome. And as I said before, uniquely, there's no other example in Scripture, they always appear together. They never are separate, they're never apart. They were literally co-equals in ministry. They worked together, they served together, they sacrificed and they suffered together. As Paul even said in Romans 16, he said, they risked their lives for me and not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful for them. We're not given any details, but these people were willing to go all the way for the church And lastly, they died together. July 19th, 64 AD, Rome caught on fire. Uh, 13 of the 14, 16 districts of the city burned to the ground. A lot of people looked at the emperor and suspected him because not only was he mad as a rabbit parrot, but he was also... um, really desirous to build glorious things and he needed space, he needed to clear ground. Historians debate whether or not he actually built the, started the fire or if it was just coincidental because at that time Rome was mainly a city made of wood anyway. The stone, the great structures we see there today when we visit Rome are, are, were built after the fire, not before. But the traditional history tells us that they were arrested After Paul was executed, they were tortured and then executed, but they remained faithful to our Lord to the very end. So that when we think about what is the distinguishing characteristic that these and others like them had, we can look at a lot of gifts and abilities. They may have had talents and skills that were special, like making tents. They may have had gifts of hospitality and of teaching all important things, but what is it that really stands out? In other words, what is necessary for any of those things to make any difference or to matter at all? And it's simply a word that has, for most of us, lost distinction. It's the word being faithful. Faithful. Faithfulness to me is the most underrated quality, and yet it is the most important quality in the church. Jesus was faithful. In fact, in Revelation 1.5, we're told Jesus, who is the faithful witness. Solomon warned, most men will proclaim each his own goodness, but who can find a faithful man? Why is faithfulness so important? <laughs> because faithfulness means that you will continue to do the same thing each time. You know, if you've ever run a business, faithfulness is kind of important. If you're, you're, you're a contractor, you want people who understand what the numbers on a tape measure stand for, which is not really something you can assume anymore. You want them to be able to drive the right end of the nail into the wood. You want them to have these basic skills in order to... But if they're not faithful, if they don't show up every morning, <laughs> then what good are they? They can be the most talented craftsmen in the world, but what good are they if you can't rely upon them, you can't depend upon them. We live in a culture that is more specialized in making excuses 
for flaky people than it is really honoring faithful people. And we're seeing the effect. And my question really to you is, how faithful are you? In the Psalms, David made an interesting statement. He said, blessed is the man who swears to his own hurt and changes not. In other words, God blesses the individual who gives their word to do something and they do it even when it ends up being more expensive or more costly or more time-consuming than they realized. Blessed is that man or that woman. Because faithfulness, which seems to be thought very lightly of in our world, is something that's very important. My wife and I have been married for 51 and a half years because we chose to be faithful until death do us part. That's been fairly easy for me. It's been very challenging for her. (laughs) But I need say no more. I think you understand why. (laughs) I've stayed pastoring this church going on 39 years now. Because God simply said, be faithful. In the end of the day, you have something to show for it. Stanley Volk, who was an elderly pastor, British Baptist minister that I got to know many years ago, passed away some time ago now, but profoundly influential in my life. But I just remember him saying, the biggest mistake I ever made was to change churches because I was offered a promotion from a smaller church to a bigger church. And he said to me, whatever you do, stay with the church that God has put you in. It's not the American way, you know. We're always looking for the next upward mobile move in our life, are we not? But how rare it is when you see people who are saying, you know, I had this opportunity, but I turned it down because I realized that I would be walking away from something that God has called me to do. Now, if you're going through something like that, please don't ask me to answer the question for you. I have no idea. But I just know that at the end of the day, why have I been here for 39 years? It's because God has not given me permission to leave. There have been times, believe me, there have been times. (laughs) And someday I'll get up here and say, today I'm gonna preach this sermon that I've been wanting to preach for 39 years. (laughs) Not really. But I'm just saying that there's something... I'm so thankful that we just didn't give up. When the bad times came, we didn't give up. And when good times came, we understood why. Believe it or not, this is a good time. I like you guys. (laughs) The guy used to sit in your seat, not so much. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I always tell people, this is why I spent most of grade school in the principal's office. Just couldn't keep from making those kind of obvious remarks. <laughs> and I, I, I'm sorry for it because, you know, Mrs., Mrs. Wilson wasn't that overweight. <laughs> but when you're eight, you know, it just kind of... Okay. Now I've dug that hole. (laughs) I'll stop digging. Let's pray. Father God, I pray in the name of your son, Jesus, that you would help us. Help us, God, to understand not just the seriousness of the times, but the profoundness of the opportunities that come to us in serious times. Like Esther of old, Lord, we, we were brought to this position that we're in for just this moment that we're living in. And there may be a thousand more of those moments that we'll experience in our lifetime, but God, don't let us despise the days of small things or despise the days of difficult things or despise the days of challenging things, but let us, as Paul said, quit yourself like men. Let us not be snowflakes in the face of adversity, Lord, but help us to stand fast in the faith 
As Paul told the Corinthians in the end of chapter 15, he said, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Emblazon that in our hearts, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name.